Thanks for listening to the Jazz Drew Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, San Francisco, America's most liberal city, is stuck in a doom loop of homelessness, drug abuse, and sensational crime. What lessons are there for Vancouver so we don't repeat the same mistakes? Plus, a Kitsilano community group takes the government to court over Bill 26, saying citizens have the right to push back on government, rezoning neighborhoods to build modular housing. Plus, we speak to a Port Moody retiree who collects used air conditioners to help seniors during heat waves. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's talk about Canada Day. Now, our national holiday is one that brings lots of smiles, a big party, and one assumes would have included fireworks this year at Canada Place. If you are planning to go to Canada Place to celebrate Canada Day this year, you just don't expect fireworks, but there'll be lots of lots going on, and we wanted to take a take a, get a sense of what was occurring this year at Canada Place and get a sense of why they've decided not to move ahead with fireworks as well. Joining me now is Jillian Benke, Manager of Community Relations and Events with the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority. Jillian, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jazz. Nice to talk to you. So let's start uh, from the beginning and the obvious question. Why the decision to cancel the fireworks? Well, actually, it was a decision that we made last year when we decided to return to in-person Canada Day celebrations. We really wanted to take the event in a whole new direction. And we planned it collaboratively with representatives from Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil And we've named it Canada Together, with the theme being weaving together the fabric of a nation. So it really is a whole new event. And with the new direction, uh, an evening portion just wasn't a part of the event. So we did discontinue the fireworks. Uh, is, uh, is it also about cost as well? Yes, absolutely. That was a major factor because... When we looked at the overall scope of cost associated with the event and where we wanted to focus our resources to make it as awesome and safe and successful as possible for everybody that was coming down, we had to make some cuts. And unfortunately, it was where fireworks were were concerned. Any, uh, would you be able to provide our listeners a number in regards to what it costs to, to have fireworks on Canada Day? It's, um, it's actually a combination of a number of costs. It's not specifically the show itself, which is only 15 minutes, but significant expenses associated. It's also the related costs as far as policing and just other things that are needed to support the crowds of that size coming down to the facility. So it was, you know, over a couple hundred thousand dollars. So it's really significant for a 15-minute show. So for those 15 minutes, you know, it, it, it wasn't worth the, the 200000 plus that it would cost you for policing, I'm assuming overtime, it, insurance, everything else that goes with it. Yeah, it's really more about aligning with the event we were creating moving forward with Canada Together mm-hmm. and focusing the money that we do have and the expenses that we do have on that new event. Mm-hmm. Was there any chance of looking for sponsorship specifically for the fireworks so that you could have kept the fireworks uh, included with the program that you've you've created. We have gone down that road over the years. I mean, we've been we've been hosting a an event on July first for many many years, and we have gone down the road. We have had sponsors for fireworks in the past, and we do have some absolutely wonderful sponsors tied to the event, mm-hmm. uh, and they're just so we're so glad to have them on board um, for this year. It's or end last year when we created this new Canada Together event. It's more about what do we want this event to be. It's not about what it used to be. Mm-hmm. It's about what it is moving forward, and it's a daytime event that really focuses on bringing people together in celebration, watching great performances, and just having a really wonderful time. Uh, I'm a firm believer in, you know, things can change, programs change, you want to make sure programs are contemporary and reflective of of the time, but I'm also a firm believer in more things change and more things remain the same, and that is people like fireworks 
on a national holiday, whether it be Canada Day, the 4th of July, uh, whatever national holiday is in Europe or Asia, people like fireworks. Uh, Are you you at all concerned about uh, pushback or disappointment from the public? I think already Mayor Ken Sim has tweeted that he's incredibly disappointed and seeing that the fireworks are, uh, are cancelled, are you worried about any pushback or any? Is there any conversation about potentially bringing them back? Uh, well, I mean, I can't speculate for the future. What I do know is what we've created is a truly wonderful, positive event for the public. And so, I really just hope people will come down and see what we've been creating. It's it's a really wonderful day where people can say what Canada Together means to them and what what role they want to play in the country as we move forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, And are you able to give any specifics in regards to what you'll be doing during the day? If there's, I'm going to give you the opportunity to at least explain some what the program would look like. Uh, What can we expect? Well, I would love to give you some specifics, but we are doing our announcement on June 1st, so I can't share any real details on performers until then, but I can tell you a few of the things. We have uh, the main stage out on Canada Place Way, right in front of Canada Place, and there will be some really spectacular performers. There will be a kid's zone on Jackpool Plaza, and our amazing mascot dance-off is coming back. That's always a, a family favorite. And then on the North Point this year, we are changing the programming a little bit, and that will be focused on emerging artists and up-and-coming performers from around the Lower Mainland. So it's going to be a great day full of amazing uh, artisans, performers, all different types of things. It's a great way to come down and celebrate the day. All right. Well, Jillian, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Look forward to chatting with you soon uh, when you do announce your program. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jess. All right. That is Jillian Benke. She's the manager of community relations and events with the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority. All right. So what do we know? We know uh, that uh, they didn't have fireworks last year, so they're continuing not to have fireworks. It's essentially canceled. Uh, the, the concern is it's a 15-minute show and the cost is a couple hundred thousand dollars for overtime, insurance, all those other costs uh, that are usually um, that, that come with events like this. Here's my take. I think this is a big mistake. You should have fireworks in Vancouver, in a port city, on Canada Day. The absurdity to think that if we are going to be whatever we call ourselves, a world-class city or just any mid-tier city, it's absurd on Canada Day to celebrate our national holiday that we're not going to have fireworks. You know who is going to have fireworks? Surrey. Surrey's going to have fireworks. Why can Surrey uh, have fireworks assume the cost and I'm you know the, the costs aren't going to be any less for Surrey than they are for Vancouver are you telling me Vancouver can't find sponsorship Vancouver can't afford a couple hundred thousand dollars to celebrate um our nation uh, it's one of those big events of the summer it is ridiculous and remember Richmond has fireworks other communities other suburban communities have fireworks and Vancouver somehow always manages to do silly things like this. France has formally uh, banned domestic flights on short routes that can be covered by a train in less than two and a half hours in a move aimed at reducing airline emissions. Now, the change, which came into effect this week, will mostly rule out air trips between Paris and regional hubs such as Lyon and Bordeaux with connecting flights unaffected. Now, some have said that the French law will be a test case for governments around the world. Here's a brief report from France 24. If the journey can be made by train in less than two and a half hours, the commercial flight is off the table. Christophe Béchu, 
Junior Minister of the Green Transition tweeted that this was one more step towards the decarbonisation of our transport. But critics call it at best a symbolic gesture and at worst scandalous greenwashing. The lines affected will be the Paris-Nantes, Paris-Lyon and Paris-Bordeaux connections from the Paris airport of Orly, lines which have not been running since Covid. And for the ban to apply, it has to be possible to take the train both ways in the same day, leaving eight hours in between in the destination city, creating a loophole for flights to Roissy-Charles-de-Gaulle, another airport in the greater Paris region. The ban also does not apply to connecting flights. Well, joining me now to talk about uh, this move in France is Dr. Simon Donner, climate scientist and professor at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Donner, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on this afternoon. Your thoughts on this? I mean, I think something like this was coming, that eventually a country was going to decide that short-haul flights aren't worth it if we can replace them with other forms of transportation. But at the same time, this is pretty unique to France. It would be hard to do in a lot of other places. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to assume Canada would be one of those places just simply because of our size. Yeah, and there's really kind of two issues here. One is size, and just, but the other one is just infrastructure. For anyone who's listening who's ever been to France, France has a national train network with really high-speed trains. So you can go a long distance in two and a half hours. You know, here in Canada, it takes four hours to take the train from, from, you know, from Vancouver to Seattle. So that wouldn't even count uh, here. And so part of it is that France has the infrastructure that, frankly, makes short-haul flights kind of silly. You should take the train. Mm-hmm. Uh, having taken the train in France, you're absolutely right. It, I mean, the, the infrastructure is is uh, significant, uh, and at the same time, they have a, I guess, a greater density of population as well to perhaps justify some of that infrastructure spending uh, as well. For countries like Canada uh, that are watching this, what are the lessons for us? Well, one of one of the lessons is just seeing how seriously other countries are taking climate change. You know, air travel represents little under 3% of global emissions. So it's not the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions, but it is one that has been growing over time. I think we all can sense that just knowing how much more crowded airports have become over time, you know, taking out obviously the gap of the pandemic. And what we're seeing now is countries are starting to not just look at the big source of emissions. It's not just about, you know, electricity. It's not just about how we heat and cool our homes. We're trying to go after everything. Mm-hmm. Because when it comes down to it, if we want the planet to stop warming, mm-hmm. we have to stop adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And that means looking at every source. Uh, you raise a very good point. I had uh, John Valiant on uh, yesterday. He's got a, a wonderful book uh, on the uh, Fort McMurray fire uh, from 2016. I had him on the show yesterday. We had a fabulous conversation uh, of, of just how it started and the impact it had on people. In the last couple of weeks, even on this show, we've talked about municipal governments potentially looking at uh, making landlords responsible for cooling systems just as they were for or just as they are for heating systems. We've talked about schools needing cooling systems. We've talked about how do you have cooling centers. Uh, I guess this is a broader conversation now in society that we climate change is part of that broader conversation that we that, which is impacting our policy conversation it's impacting how do we keep our kids school, uh, cool at school which we've talked about this week we've talked to, we're talking to a, a grandmother who is collecting old uh, air conditioners uh, in port moody so she can make them available to senior citizens who are stuck at home during a, a, a heat event uh, so i guess this is part of the broader conversation it, it those little things are all part of the broader conversation now aren't they they, they absolutely are we are whether you like it or not 
we have no choice but working to prepare for and to prevent climate change because we are in Canada seeing the impacts. You know, I think I've been studying this issue for 25 years. And when I started, climate change was something you were supposed to go somewhere else to see. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea was that you wouldn't see the impacts here at home. But that's really changed. I think everybody across the country, especially here out in Vancouver and in British Columbia, have experienced the impacts of climate change from the heat dome to the forest fires to the terrible flooding we had, even to the high sea level event that washed that barge up onto the beach downtown a couple winters ago. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, we're all seeing the effects. It, what I think we, it would be really important for people to focus on, certainly we talk about like schools and, and cities and homes in the city and homes, is what can we do that will both help us reduce emissions and help us prepare for climate change? Because as it is, we're not adapted enough. And we saw that during the heat dome, how many people died. So a good example of that is how we heat and cool our homes. The most logical thing for buildings and homes in Vancouver is to use electric heat pumps rather than natural gas. Because guess what? An electric heat pump doesn't emit greenhouse gases and they work both directions. So you get both heating and cooling. So they both help prevent climate change as well as help uh, prepare for it. What other one or two things do you think? I mean, you know, we have uh, uh, clean hydroelectric power, relatively clean hydroelectric power. What are the other things? Uh, the heat pump issue is a, is a really important one. We just did a segment on that last week as well. Uh, but is it building codes that we need to be focusing on? I know automotive emissions would probably be another one, but I think that transition is occurring relatively quickly depending on pricing for vehicles. But what are the one or two other things where you like to see some numbers of the, the, this, the, that would help us drive down our, our, our GHG numbers? Well, in the Metro Vancouver region, most of our emissions are from transportation and from heating and cooling buildings. And it is because, like you said, we have the advantage of this really low to almost zero carbon electricity grid because of hydropower. So if anyone in the world you know, can get to sort of zero emissions, it should be us mm-hmm. here in the lower mainland. And so to me, it's working on that heating and cooling, working towards electric heat pumps or just at least district energy systems like we have here in um, Canby Corridor in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at the vehicle level, it's remembering that this isn't just about passenger vehicles, but we also have to think about those larger vehicles, trucks, medium and heavy duty vehicles, which are harder to decarbonize. It's harder to shift them over to batteries. We need to be looking at all sorts of different solutions. Mm-hmm. And also what passes for a vehicle. <laughs> we we all don't need SUVs. Some of us may, but not all of us. So that's part of the conversation <laughs> as Absolutely. well. Yeah. Do- uh, Dr. Donner, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to having you on the show again. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, recently, the Financial Times had an article on its uh, global in its global edition questioning if America's most liberal city could ever pull itself out of its doom loop. Uh, they were talking about San Francisco. And what uh, is happening is that cities in the midst of a crisis that includes homelessness, drug abuse, and sensational crime, all of which uh, threatens the city's future. Now, San Francisco is home to the global tech industry, home to four out of the ten most valuable companies in the world, including Apple, Alphabet, NVIDIA, and Meta. It has 70 billionaires alone who call San Francisco home. The city produces significant wealth and just as impressive uh, tax base. However, a staggering 1% of the city's population is homeless, compared with less than 0.2% across the U.S. The gulf between rich and poor is among the largest in America. Now, San Francisco 
also has the second highest rate of drug deaths of any city in the U.S. after Philadelphia. Uh, almost twice as many people in the Bay Area, about 2,000, have died from overdoses uh, than from COVID-19 since 2020. Now, high house prices and rents are also soaring to among the highest in the U.S. during the last tech boom. Uh, since the pandemic, tech companies have embraced remote working, laid off staff, and slashed office spaces, leaving almost a third of the city's commercial real estate vacant. The area has lost 2,500 businesses since March of 2020. Homelessness, drug abuse, crime, high rents, affordability issues, businesses shutting down. Does that remind you of another liberal city? Perhaps Vancouver, and perhaps on a smaller scale. But these are similar issues that Vancouver is also dealing with. The problem with that, San Francisco is they are in what many uh, people who look at urbanism, they're in the midst of a doom loop. What lessons are to be there to be learned from San Francisco's doom loop? Well, joining me now to discuss the issue is Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, planner, and a real estate consultant as well. Michael, Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Your thoughts on this doom loop uh, that uh, many commentators have said San Francisco is uh, in the midst of a a crisis of homelessness, drug abuse, uh, crime, and it can't pull itself out. Uh, It's sober reading, isn't it? It's very sober reading. I can remember the very first time I saw people sleeping on the streets was in San Francisco. And at the time, it was quite horrific. And, of course, today we have become so accustomed to it. I mean, for those who haven't read the story, what it's talking about is that the the drug use is becoming so rampant that a lot of people simply don't want to be in many parts of the downtown. And as a result of that, combined with COVID, Office space, is a, uh, there's a 30% vacancy rate in, in office space in a large portion of the downtown. I mean, the story focuses on the downtown, not the entire San Francisco Bay Area. But it is horrific to read it, but I do think it offers some lessons for Vancouver because I think we are slowly heading in a similar direction. What are the lessons in your mind? Well, the first one is... Somebody once said, if you're sitting in the bathtub with the hot water running, how do you know when to shout? And I think we're, that's what's happening right now. We are all witnessing so many deaths we're miss, uh, from fentanyl and overdose. We're witnessing a lot of crime, an increasing amount of crime, to the point that I think we're almost becoming immune to it. And uh, and I think in San Francisco, people were becoming so used to it and immune to it. And then the question was, just how bad do things have to get before you suddenly say, we, we, we you know, you're you're reaching national and international media, and uh, you have to start to do something about it. I mean, in Vancouver, there's no doubt we are very actively trying to deal with the drug overdose crisis. We're trying to deal with the homelessness or unhoused people crisis. But I definitely think that uh, we have to do more. And it's not just housing people. There's much more that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. So uh, you've talked about dealing with the issue of drugs. Um, What other things do you think Vancouver needs to be focused on as a region? And with help of senior government, is the question of more housing as well? Certainly more housing, and not necessarily just housing people in new projects, which can take a long time to create. Toronto had a very effective program called Street to Home, 
where they basically were housing people in individual rental apartments as they became available. And then they were, these individuals were provided with support services. And at the beginning, I mean, the support services may well have been there every day. But over time, they were able to reduce the necessity of those support services. And uh, according to the reports that I had when I once toured uh, with homeless uh, advocates in Toronto, 2,000 people were taken off the streets through this street-to-home program. But in Vancouver, we tend to build more projects, which take a long time, and then they bring their own problems because of the high concentration of people who, who, who are both drug-addicted and suffering from mental illness, which brings me to another point. We definitely do need to build more facilities to accommodate people who are mentally ill. Many of them simply cannot even be housed in, in new apartments. They're simply not capable of living in those apartments. Mm-hmm. And uh, Francis Bueller and others have written about that. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the article in the Financial Times for the International Edition talks about the doom loop. And they said that the doom loop really is about remote workers never coming back to downtown Vancouver. Um, and we got to remember, San Francisco is the epicenter of tech, the Silicon Valley. Uh, over 70 billionaires there, world-class companies. So if remote workers never come back or not come back to the, what they were pre-COVID, it usually drives the value of office space, which leads to businesses shuttering. And there are 2,500, uh, or San Francisco has already lost 2,500 businesses uh, since March of 2020. Uh, then, of course, they said the political infighting uh, among politicians continues, and that usually leads to you know, challenges of finding programs that can deal with the issue that we're talking about, homelessness, violence, and drug use, the tax base shrinks. It is just an endless doom loop where a city can spiral down. To a certain degree, I guess you could say you saw that with New York many decades ago before it made its comeback. This, and maybe it's not as, um, every city's not going to be as bad as, let's say, San Francisco, but I think to a certain degree, every city, a major city, is struggling to deal with life after COVID, aren't they? There's no doubt that COVID has had a real impact, um, and especially in terms of people not going into the office. But it's a combination of things in San Francisco. It's, it's not one of the reasons people don't want to go back to the office is in many instances they're not feeling safe going to the offices. And this article that you shared with me talks about how Whole Foods and uh, Nordstrom's and a number of other major businesses that were next to these office buildings, they have also now closed down and moved out of the area, in part, in large part, because of the, the crime on the streets, the homelessness on the streets, and the related problems. So they're all kind of interrelated. Now, we haven't got the same problems in Vancouver to the extent uh, that we're seeing people closing down businesses and offices to the same extent because of the crime on the streets, but it is happening here. There's no doubt it is happening here as well. You know, you asked me before, Jazz, what else can we do? A number of years ago, I volunteered in the downtown east side, and I spoke to a lot of people, and they often gave me ideas that many times we don't talk about. I mean, one of the problems of being unhoused is that you're often at work. You don't have anything to do during the day. You don't have any work. Now, some will say, well, these people, and we use that term, these people, they can't work. But it's not entirely true. You know, with various support 
some of these people could be working. So there's a whole area there of figuring out how to help train people or at least getting them to work. One of the other things is people can't work because if they're in a shelter, they don't have a dress. Well, give them an address. Give them a post office box. Another thing is people don't have clothes. Well, we, we all have far too many clothes in our closets that if we were just given a nudge and told or how to make those clothing, uh, those things available, we'd do that. And also there's just personal hygiene. A lot of people just need to, they need to get cleaned up, but, mm-hmm. you know, barbershops and things like that. So there's a variety of things. Now, people are going to say that it's crazy to be talking this way, but it isn't. I think there's a... You you and I get to go to work every day. So many people, if they're retired, they still get to go to discussion groups. They get to travel. Mm -hmm. These people who are on the streets have literally nothing to do, Mm -hmm. nowhere to go. They don't even have community centers that they can go and hang out in, and they can't hang out in the shelter. And I think that's what contributes to the problems on the street. We're speaking to Michael Geller, who's the president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, planner, and real estate consultant. We're talking about San Francisco, Vancouver, uh, sorry, America's most liberal city. Uh, but it is going through significant challenges of homelessness, drug abuse, and sensational crime. Uh, similar things that Vancouver is going through. We're asking what lessons can be learned uh, by Vancouver because uh, San Francisco has a significant amount of wealth, but significant challenges before it as well. Home to four, the 10 most valuable companies in the world, 70 billionaires, um, massive budget every year, but yet they still have significant challenges in that city. Uh, now, Michael, part of the conversation we're having in our city is trying to find a l- fine line between not arresting people for uh, carrying a small amount of hard drugs because they're dealing with an addiction. At the same time, many have said the, that it's the wrong way to go. You see municipalities recently now bringing in bylaws, uh, banning public use of drugs. There's that fine line between compassion and law and order. And we still seem to be struggling to find that point where we can agree collectively on where we need to be. Uh, We seem to be in the midst of that debate as well, and the people that need the help are not getting the help. I think that's true. Now, there's others who are in a better position to comment on this. I would say that, generally speaking, San Francisco took a very compassionate approach And it obviously did not work. And now others are coming in to sort of bring in law and order. I would say generally in Vancouver, certainly since 2008, when Gregor Robertson was elected and promised to end homelessness, we have generally taken a more compassionate approach as well. And but eventually we saw literally hundreds of tents being set up on the streets. Um, And we, we so many other problems are happening in the in parts of the downtown that I don't even want to discuss on the radio. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's why I think now there is a, a growing interest in a more law and order approach. I was at a, a talk earlier this week with uh, Ravi Cullen, the new Minister of Housing, who I must say did a phenomenal job of addressing questions from some very angry, concerned people who are living in the downtown and are saying their neighborhoods are being ruined by the violence and the drug attack, drug activity outside their homes and the related problems. And uh, one of the interesting things, and it's in this article you shared with me, in San Francisco, it used to be somewhat isolated to a certain part of the city, and then it spread. In Vancouver, I think the same held true as well, that homelessness, we really only saw homeless people in the downtown east side. But now we're starting to see homeless people in Kitsilano, Carisdale, and indeed throughout the city. 
And the newest policy really is to try and uh, spread facilities out throughout the city, which I think could potentially exacerbate that issue as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it probably all depends on your political perspective, whether you tend to be a liberal or tend to be very, very conservative. Yes, uh, but it is, uh, I think it's important that we continue to watch uh, many cities, uh, whether it be in Canada or in the United States, they're going through some similar issues. But San Francisco, as you've articulated very well, a great city, uh, but uh, it is going through some incredible challenges, and I think there, uh, you are correct. There are lessons to be learned uh, for Vancouver, that's for sure. Michael, thank you for your time once again. Always enjoy, enjoy our conversations. I uh, look forward to chatting with you soon. Thank you very much for inviting me. Kitsilano Coalition has filed a court challenge in B.C. Supreme Court against the NDP's uh, Bill 26. Uh, now, that bill was introduced by their housing minister, Ravi Kila, not too long ago to push ahead the Arbutus Project, uh, which was uh, slated for the area around West 7th and 8th uh, in, um, in Kitsilano. Now, according to the city at the time, the proposed supportive housing project is for 64 social housing units, uh, within a six-story residential building that can house 129 people once it's completed. Uh, the development was first submitted uh, to council in April of 2022. And the project has faced a fair share of backlash. Now, joining me now to talk about this challenge is Karen Finnan, spokesperson for the Kitsilano Coalition. Karen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jazz. I just wanted to correct you off the top. It's Mm -hmm. actually a 13-story building with 129 single occupancy units. I I said it was a six-story residential building. Is that what I said? Yeah, you said 64 units is what I heard. Yes, that was supposed to be, I think what it is, is for 64 social housing units within a six-story residential building that can house 129 people. All right, so we've clarified that. My first question to you is, uh, why do this? Why have you got to the point where you need to do this? Well, very simply, David Eby is wielding his legislative power to target one community in complete disregard of citizens' constitutional right to have the courts review the actions of decision-makers like municipalities. David Eby's declared war on a community that has been clear and consistent in its support for social and supportive housing at 7th and Arbutus, but we've just asked for changes to the project that will address safety concerns and ensure the project is a success for both the future tenants and the surrounding community. But your core concern, your coalition's core concern, is that project just doesn't fit into the neighbourhood. What changes do you think that can be made that would be palatable to the coalition? Well, ultimately, it's the wrong model of housing. Uh, It's a wrong model of housing, whether it's here or whether it's anywhere in the city. Um, placing so many vulnerable individuals, some suffering from problems like mental illness and substance abuse, all in one building without providing supportive services and with having a, an open-use drug room, is it's not going to work for the residents there. And for us in the neighbourhood, it's going to cause safety concerns with the elementary school 17 metres across the street, daycare in the same spot, uh, toddler playground 20 metres away, and the Arbutus Greenway uh, directly borders on the east side. Uh, I noticed today that the housing minister, Ravi Kailaw, uh, in a tweet said that we are in the housing crisis and need to get homes built faster for everyone, including those most in need in our society. We cannot continue to relitigate decisions that were made by a duly elected body. This important housing uh, will proceed on the timeline we have laid out. Uh, what would you say to that comment that uh, Mr. Kinlaw made a couple of hours ago? 
beyond dispute that we're in a housing crisis and we need to build housing quickly. But does that mean that we're going to build the wrong model of housing and cement Vancouver's legacy with 60 years of congregate housing for individuals that doesn't provide them the supports they need to uh, transition back into society and reunite with their families? If there's a housing crisis, why didn't David Eby put... Uh, temporary modular housing on this site. It's sat vacant for two years. Or why hasn't six stories of housing been built on that site if we're in a housing crisis, Jess? Uh, do you worry that if this is what's happening in Kitsilano, that this is going to lead to more more uh, um, court challenges, more fighting, uh, and that very little will get built? No, I don't. I don't think that's the case. We're we're hoping to to deal with the constitutional challenge um, on a short term basis, have it heard in the in the next few months. So everybody's got some resolution and can move forward. Uh, we can't live in a democratic society and have our legislature stepping in when the municipality makes errors in a public hearing and frankly tramples on people's rights. It sets a dangerous precedent, Jess. Um, this, this type of legislation can be used in any number of contexts. All we need is a city to uh, not abide by the rule of law, write a letter to David Eby, and he'll swoop in with a legislative solution to make the problem go away. Is that the kind of uh, democracy that we want to live in? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, any sense of what the timeline will be for this legal challenge, how long it would take? Well, we certainly would like to have it heard expeditiously, but uh, we've got restrictions in terms of when the court has availability for it. We are hoping that uh, the government will come to us with early dates. If we're in a housing crisis and we need to resolve things, then let's get early dates, let's get this resolved so we can move forward. Ultimately, uh, we don't want to be litigating this site, Jazz. What we want uh, is for David Eby to come to us and say, okay, we understand that perhaps we went astray with this type of project on this site. Let's sit down finally after two years and hear what your ideas are about how we can build social and supportive housing on this site, which is good for the neighborhood and is good for the folks that are going to live in the tower. Ultimately, that's what we want to do. We don't want to go to court. We want to find a solution. Mm-hmm. Um if, when, I, when I hear you and I understand your concerns and I understand where the government's coming from, uh, is there a middle ground here uh, in regards to what you're asking for and what the government wishes to do? I mean, from what I am sensing, it's very difficult to have a middle ground here because the government's going to say we're compromising too much. This is what we need. We need to help people who are very much in, in need our need our help and have deep issues around mental health and addiction. And there is no middle ground with the Kitsilano coalition in this case. No, that's not the case. So there's never been any discussion with the coalition about what kind of tenanting restrictions we might be able to have at a project like this that would satisfy the safety concerns of the existing vulnerable groups that are living in the neighborhood. For example, you might be familiar with the Mount Edwards project Mm -hmm. in Victoria, and it was proposed to be right across from a school and, of course, there was concern in the community and at the um, public hearing stage. And subsequently, there were restrictions put on the tenity that satisfied the concerns of the community. And that project is operating safely and, by all accounts, a success. And I understand that they, in fact, will be adding some more units there. So there is a way that we can make this work. But uh, with Mr. Eby, it's been his way or the highway. No one's talked to us about all of the great ideas we have and the the types of compromises that we would like to make. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Karen, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to chatting with you in the near future. Thanks very much, Jeff. Let's talk about climate change uh, for a moment. Uh, there's no doubt uh, we are seeing the impacts of it. Just yesterday, we were talking to uh, author John Valiant about his new book uh, on the Fort McMurray uh, wildfires in 2016 uh, and the impact it had on that community and many people's lives. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about uh, on this show uh, landlords uh, being held responsible for providing cooling systems for tenants, just as they're required to provide uh, heating systems. It's one that uh, it's an issue that has been debated by our local government uh, association just recently. Uh, we also on this show last um, week or so talked about how a couple of brand new schools that were built in the Lower Mainland uh, did not have any cooling system put in or an air conditioning system that was uh, Crosstown uh, Elementary here in Vancouver, New Westminster Secondary School uh, as well, New Westminster Secondary School, by the way. Uh, we spent $100 million uh, building that school and students already, based on the last couple of weeks, have been complaining about uh, very hot days, making it much diff- very difficult to, to learn. Uh, and today, earlier in the show, we talked about France formally banning domestic flights on short routes that can be covered by train uh, in less than two and a half hours in a move aimed at reducing airline uh, emissions as well. It, that type of policy is uh, one that some would have argued is a test case for governments around the world. So we certainly are already feeling certain impacts of climate change. What change? Well, from new research from the University of Waterloo, uh, shares a projection of what the next three decades will look like across the country. And there, of course, are causes for concern. Joining me now is Joanna Akam. She's the Managing Director of Climate Resilient Infrastructure at the Intact Centre on Climate Adaption within the Faculty of Environment at the University of Waterloo. Joanna, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I apologize for the long intro, but I just wanted to provide some context and and what we're talking about here in the Metro Vancouver and uh, Southern Vancouver Island area, and then the broader context, which, of course, you and your colleagues at the University of Waterloo are are studying. Can you provide us sort of broad uh, projections of what this new research uh, has shown? So basically what we're seeing um, in terms of projections for extreme heat is that there are three kind of what we've termed red zones um, where we're most exposed in Canada to extreme heat. Uh, Those are the kind of valleys and lowlands of BC, the southern prairies along the U.S. border and then kind of from the Great Lakes down the St. Lawrence River Valley. Um, And it should be stressed that it's uh, cities within those zones that are probably most at risk um, because of the urban island, the heat island effect. Actually, our cities can be some 10 to 15 degrees hotter than surrounding rural areas just because artificial surfaces kind of absorb and then give out uh, heat. So they keep our our cities hotter in these kind of uh, heat wave events. Mm -hmm. And what we're anticipating with climate change is that you know, we're going to have more hot days over 30 degrees. I was just listening to the weather forecast. It seems like we're getting to that temperature to now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also going to expect higher temperatures, so the maximum values are going up, and also more frequent and longer heat waves. Uh, and so in British Columbia, I just want to clarify, so it would be the lower mainland area and then sort of the southern southern British Columbia? Yeah, the, the valleys in particular, like um, Kelowna or Kamloops, um, those areas are particularly at risk, mm-hmm. um, and particularly urban areas. So what should uh, this type of research tell um, uh, elected officials, policymakers moving forward? What kind of things do we collectively have to, as a society have to start looking at? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we published a report last year looking at different levels of action. So mm-hmm. there are levels, obviously, of community action. We need to particularly support vulnerable people, people who are living on their own, or elderly with chronic illnesses, the homeless, who are more susceptible to impacts of extreme heat. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also things that um, you mentioned, landlords. There's kind of, uh, obviously, a, a lot of people who are living alone or in apartment buildings who don't have necessarily control over their building as a homeowner would do. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, responsibility for property owners and managers. Um, but also things that individuals can do, and that's something that we've been focusing on at the Impact Center is really communicating uh, with the public as kind of the, the actions that are actually within our control. Um, you know, when we're thinking about DIY around the home, there are things that we can do ourselves as well. Do you remain an optimist uh, yourself and your colleagues who've got this work to do and you're doing this research? It, it speaks to uh, individual changes, individual actions as well in regards to our consumption patterns. But you are moving an entire society how it eats, how it uh, plays, uh, how it runs its life. You're changing an entire economy that has been reliant on, you know, fossil fuels. Uh, do you still remain an optimist in the ability to, 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 for society, especially nations, to make that hard pivot? I think, I think we have to remain optimistic because, you know, what is the alternative, really? Um, if we don't have hope, what do we have? Uh, so um, so I think, you know, I, I'm a natural optimist. So personally, you know, uh, the fact that we're not seeing things happen as quickly as we want to gives me kind of uh, energy to kind of get out of bed every day and try and move things faster. Um, so I think, you know, we do want to see... Um, we do want to see more rapid action, obviously, um, on both fronts. I think that's one of the key messages is when people talk about climate action, they automatically think about carbon emissions. Um, but there's this other side of the coin uh, on adapting to the, the impacts that we know are going to happen. And that's where we're, we've, we've kind of underinvested in Canada. We really need to step up action on that side of things because something like um, from the finance community, for example, 90 of climate finance goes to mitigating greenhouse gas emissions and only 10% to adaptation. Um, And, you know, we're not going back to a normal climate, so we we do really need to step up action to prepare for what's coming. Mm -hmm. Um, When you look at um, cities like Vancouver, is it also going to come down to, you know, living in smaller homes, living in denser areas, greater walking and greater use of buses, uh, and transit to get to places rather than being somebody who may live in the suburbs and has been used to, uh, you know, relying on a motor vehicle, uh, burning fossil fuels. It, it does impact how we live, though, doesn't it? It does, and both in terms of kind of carbon emissions, but also in terms of resilience. Like what we're trying to do at the Intech Centre is really bring climate resilience into people's lives. Because I think, you know, many people are making decisions like to not fly so much, to kind of change to an electric vehicle to reduce their emissions. But how many people before they buy their home are looking at the flood mapping, for example? Or how many people before they buy a home are looking at whether it's well insulated and is resilient to heat 
uh, for example. So those decisions, I don't think we have got through to the kind of social fabric of how we, we run our lives. And I think that's, you know, we really see the infographics uh, just a couple of days ago, um, detailing actions that people can take to reduce um, their, their impact of their extreme heat. And, you know, the most important action there is actually, um, it's not infrastructure, it's actually checking on people who are more vulnerable than ourselves, like uh, your friends, family and neighbours who may be on their own or maybe elderly, Um, you know, in a heat wave event, making sure that you plan in advance how you're going to check on them and um, how you're going to, like, what kind of health checklist you're going to go through and there's a, a link to that on the infographic mm-hmm. so um you know there's a social element to this because for example for extreme heat it's, it's the social um, isolation that is a common factor amongst people who have sadly died and that's something that we can address easily mm-hmm. no you're absolutely right uh well, 600 people plus died here during that uh, heat dome and in cities like new westminster lost 25 people i believe just in that community alone so you're absolutely right and uh, the, one of the suburbs here has been pushing a lot more for cooling centers making sure those announcements are made days in advance of, of any uh, heat event as well so it is a, is a fundamental sea change in regards to how we live but also how we communicate and how we take care of each other as well uh miss Acom, thank you so much for your time today really appreciate it thank you for having me so you know we have a lot of work ahead of us in regards to making sure we take care of each other uh, when it comes to these heat events. Well, our next uh, guest certainly does a lot of that. Uh, Wilhelmina Martin is a Port Moody retiree who collects air conditioners for senior citizens. And I know, Wilhelmina, you go by the name Willie, so that's what I'm going to stick with as well. So, Willie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So how did you go about starting to do this, uh, just going about and collecting air conditioners for senior citizens? Well, um, a little bit of background. I, I'm a geriatric nurse by background. I'm a senior, mm-hmm. and I've worked with seniors all my life. And I, in fact, looked after my father for 10 years in my home from the age of 80 to 90. And at that point, I installed a heat pump. So I've had a heat pump for 16 years. And I also ran a little doggy daycare in my home, and I said I need the cooling for my parent and my pet. So that, that is part of the original story. And then I had a very dear friend who died at the age of 107. And before she passed away, she said to me, I wake up every morning and I look for an opportunity to make a difference. And those words have stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And in 2021, when the heat dome went on, um, I took to heart the check on your neighbors, check on the seniors, check on the people living alone. And that's when I started this air conditioning recycling program as a crazy idea to get donated air conditioners into the residence of people who didn't have cooling. And And I I placed six air conditioners the first year, Mm -hmm. seven the second year. And this year I just put the ad out about 10 days ago on Facebook. And the timing seems to be very pertinent to a lot of issues because I, I, there's a lot of interest in what I'm doing and uh, there are a lot of people who want to help, who they want to donate air conditioners, but I have to be somewhat selective because many people cannot put window air conditioners in their premises because they're in a condo or in an apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, and floor air conditioners are easier for me to deliver if I can find volunteers. 
But I have to make sure that I get working air conditioners with all of the parts because I don't have the money to be fixing or adding parts or components. And then I'm looking for volunteers who will help install them so that they're safely installed. Uh, and and Willie, uh, what was it like when you when you do install an air conditioner? What kind of impact does it have on on an individual? Well, the very first person for whom I acquired an air conditioner was a lady who I've known off of Facebook for for a couple of years, and she phoned me one night from from Eagle Ridge Hospital and said. I have to go home and the hospital will not allow me to go home because I've got heat stroke. And when the ambulance picked me up, the temperature in my apartment was over a hundred degrees. Oh, wow. So I, I brought her to my house and she stayed in my air conditioned basement for several days. And I, I basically nursed her past her heat stroke, but we had to get back to her apartment because she had a cat in that environment. And it was that day that I got the first air conditioner delivered to her. And she has said it made all the difference in her life because she now can actually get her room to a, an acceptable level so that she can sleep. Uh, but um, we, we only have about a minute left, but I do want to ask you, uh, can seniors afford to, to, to run those air conditioners? Uh, because, I mean, it still is a huge draw on power, isn't it? It's a, it's, a, it's a critical question because that same individual has told me she can only afford to run her air conditioner for a short period of time. So I'm applying for a grant with the help of one of our city councilors, Amy Lubick, to see if we can get some money to buy new air conditioners, a little bit more efficient, and use some of that money to provide subsidies for their air conditioning costs because she said she can't afford the air conditioning costs. And there are many people like that out there. Yeah, there absolutely is. Well, you're doing fabulous work. I really appreciate it. I want to get the, this message out. So if anybody wants to donate a working portable air conditioner, uh, they can reach you at Martin at Outlook.com. That's W-I-L-H-E-L-M-I-N-A-J-Martin at Outlook.com. Now, if you've missed that in any way, email me at jazz, J-A-S, at cknw.com. I'll make sure we get that uh, information passed along to, to Wilhelmina. Uh, Willie, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. You're doing fabulous work, and it's always great to chat with somebody who cares so deeply about their community as well. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Getting back to work is tough. Uh, it's tough, uh, especially for those who are perhaps dealing with addiction issues or perhaps they're new Canadians. Well, a Vancouver-based charity called Working Gear is seeing tremendous demand for what they offer. Uh, they offer free office wear and work safety gear, and the demand for uh, their services is very, very strong and quite significant. Joining me now is Ash Holmes, a volunteer for Working Gear. Ash, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jess. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Walk me through, what's this year been like uh, for your organization? It's It's been busy. Um, we've, we Last year, um, we helped probably around 1,200 people um, across the whole year. And already, five months in, um, we've seen 800 clients or, or individuals that have come into the shop um, looking for support. So it's been a pretty full-on start to the year. We're st- seeing a really increased demand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of across the board with regards to um, the, the main demographics of, of the people that we, we look to support. And that could be people coming out of foster care. It could be people dealing with, coming back from mental health issues. 
um, people dealing with homelessness or seniors returning to work and and the other area with regards to newcomers um, to, to the area. And, and that includes, um, I think we've had 180 people um, who have you know relocated refugees from Ukraine that we've helped um, so far this year as well. And, and But the demand is that uh, when they come to you, is there is work available or they're looking for work or they have found work. They just need help uh, in regards to s- uh, sorting uh, office wear and, and safety gear. Yeah, correct. So when they when they come to us, they're referred in by a number of referral agencies that we work with, and the vast majority of them either have a confirmed interview or most of them actually have confirmed work. And what we're providing is, um, for a lot of them, it's it's the equipment. It could be a hard hat, it could be a vest. It, it, you know, for, the, for those working construction, boots is the big one on the construction side. Um, you know, construction boots are pretty expensive to get steel toe boots. Um, and then, yeah, on, on the other side with regards to suits, um, shirts, so that they're able to actually go and, and work and, and earn money for themselves. Hmm. What's the background of, of, of uh, working gear? Um, so it's it's been around for quite a few years. Um, I've been involved just for the last couple of years, mm. um, but it's really grown in that time. Um, it, it came out just initially, actually, with regards to suits and shirts and helping people um, in, I guess, what you'd call that kind of white-collar profession. And the organization's really grown and, and adapted during time because what we found is there's a huge demand, especially for people going into construction-related roles. Um, and so that's a, a big area where a lot of people coming in. Um, we have a lot of women coming in as well that are looking for, for construction wear who, who are going out onto, onto construction sites. Um, so the demand's kind of really evolved. Um, we also offer a barber shop within the shop, um, and that has been a huge amount of demand as well, um, just to provide our clients with the ability to, to have a fresh haircut um, uh, without a cost attached and, and you know, be prepared to, to go to that job interview or, or go to that first day uh, on their, in their new role. Yeah, that, that little bit of help is so important in, 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 in the early stages. If you weren't around as an organization to provide, uh, let's say, boots or a haircut or uh, just the supplies that you do offer, safety gear, uh, how many people would be unable to go to the job or do an interview? Yeah, um, quite a lot of them. So, so we actually kind of asked that question with regards to when people come into the shop. Um, quite a lot of them kind of said that they would probably have not gone into work. I think it's up to maybe 30% of people wouldn't have taken the job and then been able to work. Others would have maybe, you know, looked to borrow money from other sources, which maybe isn't the best thing to do when, you know, you're, you're coming back from some of the situations that our clients find themselves in. Um, for construction, a lot of them would have maybe probably just turned up to that construction site and, and worked with, with what they had, um, which you know, creates a bit of an uh, unsafe, uh, unsafe environment for some of them. So um, it's, it's quite helpful for a lot of those people. Uh, and if people wanted to help, uh, either as volunteers or donate dollars or donate equipment, uh, where can they go? Yeah, um, so the best place to, to start with is, is the, just searching Working Gear. Um, the website's just workinggear.ca. Um, but we're always looking for support with this amount of increased demand that we're seeing across the board, including with regards to you know what's happening in Ukraine and, and people coming there. Um, we're fortunate with regards to, to volunteers, but we're always happy to have more people come and help. But it's really on, I, I guess, some of the funding side 
Um, you know, we're supported by some of the suppliers of, of construction work, for example, who, who provide some of their stock. But we also need the funding there to go out and buy more things. You know, size 10 boots is the most popular one. We're always running out of size 10 boots and, and people kind of have to leave, a little, you know, unable to get that boot and maybe return in a couple of weeks when we get some more stuff in stock. So um, workinggear.ca is the website and um, any and all support is, is, is what we'd be, be happy to, to accept. And um, certainly funding so that we can... And we can keep providing a service um, because, yeah, that, as I said, that demand, 800 people already this year, it's, it's rapidly growing. Absolutely. You haven't even hit the halfway point. I'm just curious, for someone like yourself, what motivated you to volunteer for this organization? Um, I was was asked, my, my, my company I work for um, invited and asked if there were people that would volunteer. I happened to go. Um, and I just enjoyed the evening. Um, you know, there, there are people there where you're, you're helping them. Some of them, when you're sizing them for a suit and a shirt, for example, it's the first time they've ever been sized for a suit and a shirt. And, you know, it's quite a rewarding feeling. Um, where Some of the Ukrainian um, people that we've helped have come back and are now volunteers themselves. So you can see them now, they're working, they're employed, and they're coming back and volunteering their time to try and help out. So it's it's a hugely rewarding experience because you're really seeing the results of, of what you're supporting these people with and just how thankful people are and how amazed people are when they come in and, and that we're like, here's you know boots, here's a hard hat, here's a vest, here's full construction clothing, and they're amazed that we're not asking them for money or we're not asking them for something um, and we're helping them get back on their feet. Yeah, that is a, a great story, and you guys are doing just some amazing work. And so, for those uh, folks who are listening to this uh, conversation, if you, you do wish to volunteer or donate, you can go to Working Gear. That's workinggear.ca. Ash, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jess. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.